0: hey guys if you're like me you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market this next sponsor however has provided me with some very interesting facts to pass on to you fact one teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth it removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color natural colors vary per person but for most it's an off-white or slightly yellowish undertone fact two teeth whitening does not damage teeth but it does temporarily dehydrate when dehydrated the pores in the enamel are opened and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we all know, lead to tooth decay. Avoid or minimize acidic and sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also avoid staining substances as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact 3: Tooth sensitivity is a result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open to the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerve to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, use a post-whitening application known as remineralization or desensitizing gel. Fact 4. Caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they don't have pores for the stains to latch to. Prior to having dental work, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color, as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact 5. The key to teeth whitening is the delivery device. So long as the whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is a device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption. Whitening strips neglect crevices and molars, and they slide on your teeth. Saliva floods the generic trays because they are bulky and do not create a seal. Oh, and you likely did not know this, but LED lights are novelty items that add no benefit. You need a high-output UV light only found at the dentist. Don't fall for the gimmick. If you insist on a light that does not work, get one on Amazon for under $5. The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is the custom fitted tray. You can have your dentist make your trays for $300 to $600. Or you can head on over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you would pay at the dentist. And if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase Smile Brilliant's custom fitted night guards once again, for a fraction of the price the dentists charge. Once again, that's www.smilebrilliant.com and use coupon code WATS for an exclusive discount. That's WATTS, W-A-T-T-S. The following podcast is intended for educational purposes. Listener discretion is advised. Roman Polanski, the film director and husband of Sharon Tate, called newsmen to a hotel in Hollywood today, and there he made a long, emotional statement. Told a good deal of what had been on his mind since his pregnant wife and four others were killed at their home on August 8th. He answered no questions, only gave his statement, but it was a highly emotional one. Police said they were a pseudo-religious cult. People who worked on the ranch said they were heavy users of drugs. They just sit around all day and sleep, and that's about it and they went around collecting garbage and had that for dinner and went to the store once in a while and that was about it. They just slept and got loaded. The family left the caves they'd been living in on the Spawn movie ranch in the early fall after the Tate murders. Later, police raided the ranch and found stolen cars. The family set up another camp in the desert near Death Valley. Five members are now in jail on other charges in the desert town of Independence. The family's leader, Charles Manson, is jailed here It is expected that he will be charged in the Tate murders. Charles Manson was released from Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles County on March 21, 1967. At the time of his release, he'd served seven and a half years of his 10-year sentence for forging a government check. When he finally hit the streets that day, Manson was 32 years old and had spent more than half of his life behind bars. Oddly, though, upon his release, Manson was deemed nonviolent. Even though he'd faced juvenile convictions for armed robbery, he beat his wife, and he was caught raping another boy at knife point. But he was nonviolent. Another strange coincidence was the fact that all of Manson's time behind bars was served in federal prisons, as Bugliosi himself stated in Helter Skelter. Probably ninety-nine out of a hundred criminals never even see the inside of a federal court. Just a coincidence? Maybe. But just how many coincidences does it take to give credit to a theory? The Manson saga is a strange and twisted tale. Anybody who's done their own research into the murders will no doubt be left scratching their heads, wondering how seemingly random people could have met such terrible fates at the hands of this group of free-loving hippies. But what if these senseless, unexplainable crimes were in some way connected? What if there could have been a motive behind the murders? With so many theories behind these infamous murders, it's hard to filter through the crazy and bizarre and the actual facts, when the true story is stranger than anybody could have ever imagined. The only way to explain the whole story is to start from where it all began. This is Manson, The Experiment. I'm your host, Garrett, and this is Episode 2. In June of 1966, Manson was transferred from McNeil Island Prison in Washington to Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles. With the good time he'd earned, he was getting closer and closer to the end of his sentence and his typical procedure at federal prisons to move you out of another institution close to where you plan on living after you get out. Fed up with the cold and rain and fog, he was happy to leave McNeil. He'd been to Terminal Island Prison before, and he knew his way around and was looking forward to seeing some familiar faces. Even better, it gave Manson a chance to focus on his music. The final year of his sentence at Terminal Island went by faster than he could have ever dreamed. Manson was so busy jamming every chance he could get with run-down musicians serving time, finessing their songs. These were road-worthy musicians, and Manson learned as much as he could from them. He was comfortable. Things were finally starting to feel normal for Manson. The cold prison bars had become his home. He had good friends. He was accepted. He was appreciated. He was his own individual. The very thought of leaving brought back a wave of fear, insecurity, and his inferior feelings he had worked so hard to overcome. Upon his release in March of 1967, Manson had spent the last seven years of his life looking forward to the moment he finally set foot on the outside, a free man. As he was being processed for release, though, the fears once again came crashing down on him. He knew the dreams he'd spent day and night thinking about would never come true. It was nothing more than wishful thinking. He'd been released before and ended up right back on the inside. What could he offer anybody? On the inside, he had his guitar, he had his friends, and he was accepted. He remembered himself as a small boy curled up in an alley trying to keep warm at night. He saw himself as a young man, sleeping in sleazy rooms and wondering how he was ever going to pay the next night's rent, find food to eat, and put clothes on his back. He remembered the times in the late 50s when he was a pimp, at the peak of his glory. But even then, he knew how much of a con he was, really afraid to take an honest look at himself and judge the man in the mirror. As he waited to step out of those doors, back onto the streets and into a world he barely even knew anymore... The fear of coping with it all was almost too much to handle. But he had his music. He had a way out. For just a moment, a wave of calmness washed over him. But it didn't last long before Manson turned to one of the guards processing him. You know what, man? I don't want to leave. I don't got a home out there. Just take me back inside. With a laugh and a few comments, Manson realized his pleas were ignored. With one last photo for the files and an address... With some instructions to report within 24 hours to his parole officer, Manson was a free man. Charles Manson was back on the streets, but it wouldn't be long before he violated his parole. In fact, it would be just days after his release. As the law states, and I'm sure many people know, without explicit permission to leave your current living arrangements, you are expected to stay put. After release from prison, to violate this condition would lead to an automatic return to prison. Just years earlier, in fact, Manson had his parole revoked just for failing to report to his parole officer. But, almost immediately following his release in March of 1967, Manson headed to Berkeley, California, without consequence. When Manson eventually reported to the San Francisco Federal Parole Office to tell them he had arrived, they just filled in some paperwork and filed it away. But, not before they transferred him to a new parole officer. Someone who would play a pivotal role, whether knowingly or unknowingly, in Manson's rise from ex-con to the infamous cult guru that the world knows him as today. That parole officer was Roger Smith. Let's take a quick break. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. At this point, we are going to leave Golden Gate Park to go into and take a slight sojourn through the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. This is the new avant-garde left bank area of San Francisco, which has evolved or developed over the past number of years. In fact, uh, I would say that the last 18 months has seen a tremendous increase of the... Uh, so-called hippies who have uh, invaded and lived in this area. This is a protest against the uh, middle and upper class people of San Francisco, in fact, of the area. Uh, It is the belief of the people who live within the area. By the time Manson arrived in the East Bay area, the summer of love was in full swing. There he found a new world of free love, cheap drugs, and young people searching for a spiritual guru. But it didn't take long for Manson to adjust to the culture shock. In fact, Manson seemed to fit right in. It was here that he began applying the lessons that he had taught himself in prison. When Manson was released in 1967, it couldn't have been a better time to soak up the vibes and the free love movement. Hyde-Ashbury was the place where hundreds of wayward teenagers were arriving daily. They didn't know where they were going, or what they were going to do when they got there. So they threw their fate into the universe. They searched for meaning, a purpose, a guru to show them the way. There would be no better time before or since that would provide an environment and cultural structure so perfectly aligned that would allow Manson to cultivate his group of devoted followers and become one of the world's most infamous criminals. It was the summer of love, and Manson would take full advantage of its possibilities. Unlike many things from the Summer of Love, the Hyde-Ashbury Free Clinic survived. For a time. But, only recently, after 50 plus years, the clinic has closed. At the time that it opened in 1967, you would enter up by a steep wooden staircase, which led into a network of smaller rooms. The decor was colorful, psychedelic. It matched perfectly with the times and the culture. Even the exam rooms were painted in a funky, day-glow color. The colors helped the youth feel welcome, easing their drug-induced paranoia and reassuring them that the clinic was a safe place. In the summer of 67, and for years after, the free clinic treated the youth of the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Most often than not, they were often the patients that nobody else wanted to see. Most had no health insurance, were living in parks, on the streets, or sharing crowded apartments. Dr. David Smith was a young faculty member at the University of San Francisco, when he started the Hyde Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. The clinic opened on June 7, 1967 to a line of people stretching down the block. The team treated 250 people and worked through the night and the day. The next day, the staff treated 350 people. When the clinic first opened in 1967, the staff was entirely volunteer, a mix of doctors, nurses, and politically driven students. Keeping the clinic going was always a struggle. All the public health officials opposed it. Money for rent and supplies was always in short supply. Police officers would frequently show up and search the rooms, looking for drugs and runaways. But Smith was determined to keep the clinic open. The established medical institutions had made their disdain for the contra-culture quite clear. And, best of all, it was free. Not only free of charge, but also free from the system, judgment, in fears of consequence. Or was it? The theory of six degrees of separation states that, because we're all linked by chains of acquaintances, you are just six introductions away from any other person on the planet. It's a theory that I've often thought about, and it's a theory that lately I've begun to seriously question. Odd things happen all the time, and at the end of the day, no matter what anyone says, only you can decide for yourself whether it was just a coincidence, or by design. But. Just how many coincidences does it take to make something real, a fact, a theory, was just too crazy, too unthinkable, too dangerous to even comprehend? And so, I kept thinking, what are the odds that the year Manson, released from prison, having immediately violated his parole without consequences, headed to San Francisco to bask in the counterculture movement of the height, to soak up the vibes, to get a change of scenery, to create his family. It would also coincide with the opening of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, run by David Smith, with its network of small, colorful rooms, young faces, psychedelic posters, and small offices. One of which was occupied by Roger Smith, Manson's parole officer, and another by Jolly West. When Manson skipped town immediately following his release from prison arriving in the height, he was thrust into the summer of love and the epicenter of the hippie movement. Once there, he reported to his new parole officer, Roger Smith. A student at Berkeley's School of Criminology, Smith was fascinated with the criminal mind. Roger Smith is a very interesting character in the seams of the Manson fold and an almost protective figure in Manson's life. So much so, in fact, that Manson would come to refer to his parole officer as Jubal Horshaw. For those of you who are wondering who the heck is Jubal Horshaw, that I would suggest looking into Robert Heinlein's 1961 novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. The main character, Valentin Michael, whom after Manson would later name his son, is born and raised on the planet Mars, where he's given powers of hypnosis and comes to Earth to create a new and perfect race. And... During his mission on Earth, he is guarded by Jubal Horshaw. There are so many parallels in this novel to what would become of the Manson family, and the commonalities are just too hard to ignore. The main character demands that his followers submit to him, comprises a group of followers who are mostly women, and initiates them through sex. There is no death, only life. When Charles Manson arrived in San Francisco, what he saw blew his mind. He remembered the days back in the 50s when trying to score a bit of grass took cloak and dagger secrecy and a few middlemen. Now everything was different. Pretty young girls ran around everywhere without underwear, no bras and all willing. He couldn't believe it. All kinds of drugs were being handed to you wherever you went, on the streets, in parks and cafes. It was a different world. The night Charles Manson dropped acid for the first time upon his arrival in San Francisco was at the Avalon Ballroom, and the stage illuminated with the sounds of the Grateful Dead bouncing off what seemed like airwaves of colors he'd never seen before. To him, everybody in their far-out, colorful clothing with hanging beads and the whole hippie style reminded him of a costume party. Before he realized what he was even doing, he was looking up into an endless void, dancing to the rhythm of the beat, surrounded by vibrations and echoes of sounds he never even knew existed. The music, the acid, and the complete loss of inhibitions that night had opened up a new world for Charles Manson. He was reborn. Until finally, exhausted and dripping with sweat from dancing, he collapsed on the floor. Manson stayed in the height and soaked up the vibes that summer. He didn't even have an address, but it was home. He never had a place but crash wherever he could, with whoever he could and accepted any invitation he could to catch up on a bath. But most days, Manson would hitchhike to Berkeley, where he'd sling his guitar over his shoulder and spend a day or two on that side of things, seeing what he could scrape together and who he could spend a night with. But most of the time, he'd end up just sitting alone in a quiet part of the campus, where he'd strum his guitar and sing a few songs. Occasionally, people would stop, listen, and exchange a smile or two. Until one day, everything changed. While at the UC campus strumming his guitar in the heat of the afternoon sun, a dog ran up to Manson and started to sniff his feet. He watched for a minute, amused, and taken back. As he lifted his foot to kick the dog, a voice rang out from the distance. Don't hurt my dog! Playing along and having a bit of fun, Manson told the woman to get the dog away from him before he'd have to kick his ass. But soon enough, they sat down and started talking. This woman was thin, plain, and a straight-edge type of girl and she worked at the university as a librarian. She teased Manson about the way he spoke, going so far as to say he sounded like some kind of ex-con. Laughing it off, Manson told her he'd just been released from prison. And that comment sparked something in her. Something that Manson caught on to. She was 23 years old, single, and best of all, had a place of her own. Her name was Mary Brunner and she would be the first to fall under Manson's spell. Things were finally working out for Manson. He'd successfully applied the lessons he'd learned in prison, and he was almost an entirely different person altogether. He was 32 years old, It could almost be some of these young people's father, but he was hip. He had some crazy ideas, and he was happy to share them with anybody who would listen. And many people would. During the mid-60s, the spark of change was ignited, and the flame was quickly spreading across America. The new generation of youth that had begun to express themselves in songs and protests, they marched against the previous generation's laws and ways of life in one unified voice. This united front of collected thoughts and voices had never been seen before or since. In the mere months following Manson's release from prison, the FBI and the CIA would reactivate COINTELPRO. The intended effect of the FBI's COINTELPRO was to expose, disrupt, misdirect, or otherwise neutralize groups that the FBI officials believed were subversive. On August 25th, 1967, J. Edgar Hoover issued a memo, where he outlined a new branch of the operation, where he planned to, quote, to expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist, hate-type organizations. The activities of all such groups of intelligence interest to this bureau must be followed on a continuous basis. Efforts of various groups to consolidate their forces or to recruit new or youthful adherents must be frustrated. No opportunity should be missed to exploit the organizational and personal conflicts of the leaderships of the groups. The Co-Intel Pro operations main source of information came from informants. It was the only way for agents to really get to know these groups they infiltrated and maybe even have an impact on their credibility and status within the American social structure. The Bureau went to great lengths to make sure that these informants looked and sounded like the real deal. They had to walk the walk and talk the talk sometimes the bureau even went so far as to give prisoners commuted sentences if they would agree to work for them as an informants and many did the bureau also set up a training school where the asians learned from real criminals how to act like hippies they grew out their hair bought new psychedelic clothes and experimented with drugs they had to look the part they had to blend in and they did But perhaps even more incredible than the operation itself, is the story behind how it all came to the public's attention, and the group who exposed it all. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a 5-star rating and a review. It really does help.